0: Welcome to Episode 204 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Step 2 and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, our fearless leader, Stuart Baker, has abandoned us this week in favor of joining his grandchildren on the ski slopes of the American West, uh, so we're going to do our best to muddle through without him today. Joining me for the news roundup is Jameel Jaffer. He's the founder of the National Security Institute at George Mason. He's director of the National Security Law and Policy Program at George Mason. He works for Ironnet Cyber and does many other things. Thanks for joining us, Jameel.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh,
0: and I'm Brian Egan. I'm a partner in Steptoe and Johnson's International Regulation and Compliance Practice. Formerly the legal advisor to the State Department and the National Security Council. So, Jameel, uh, over the weekend we've seen a lot of ink spilled on the Bob Mueller indictments. Uh, Much attention focused on these indictments are unveiled on Friday. Just to review the bidding, although I'm sure everybody listening to this already knows, uh, the Deputy Attorney General unveiled an eight-count indictment uh, signed by the special counsel against a Russian entity called the Internet Research Agency, and then two Russian companies and 13 Russian entities. The indictment alleges very generally that the defendants set out to defraud the United States for the purpose of interfering with the U.S. political and electoral processes, including the presidential election of 2016. So what does this indictment really tell us, and what doesn't it tell us, Daniel?
1: Well, I think what it definitely tells us is the Russians were involved in our election, uh, that they sought to undermine our confidence in our our electoral system, in our political system, and that this is an ongoing effort, um, because as we can see, it didn't end with the election. It went on past the election. Um, and to be fair, I think that we remain in the throes of an ongoing Russian covert influence operation to undermine our ability, the ability of our government to function and Americans' confidence in our own uh, political process and electoral system. And you see it play out in a variety of ways, whether it's the uh, back and forth between the White House and the intelligence committees, uh, the White House and the FBI, the FBI and the intelligence committees. Um, everyone's sort of sniping at one another, and a lot of this is created by questions about what happened with Russia who was involved, who wasn't involved, um, and how did this go down. And, and truth be told, no matter what you think of what happened during the election time frame, the Russians have been very successful in um, in this whole effort.
0: Uh, so, yeah, lots of sniping, lots of people claiming wins or non-wins uh, over the weekend. Um, from the pure legal aspect yeah. of the indictment, Are we looking at convictions? Are we looking at prosecutions?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think so, right? I mean, getting jurisdiction over these defendants, uh, these Russian defendants, or the Internet Research Agency, the trolls, um, you know, I think it's going to be hard to do. I don't think they're going to voluntarily travel to a place where we can get them. Uh, They're probably going to hang out in Russia and not leave. Um, That being said, I do think what is interesting about the indictment, and the indictment is innovative in in certain ways. The, um, The notion of bringing a conspiracy to defraud the United States uh, to prevent the Federal Election Commission from enforcing its regulations about um, about foreign interference in elections, that's an interesting and innovative use of the conspiracy charge. Um, in my view, um, and I know there's some debate about this out there in legal academia about this, um, but I do think that it's innovative and I think what's interesting about it is what it really does is it allows, uh, the special counsel to go to folks, um, including Americans potentially and say, look, you know, you thought I didn't have charges to bring for conspiracy or collusion or whatever word you want to use because that's not a thing. Uh, well, here are some charges that show it might very well be a thing, right? Now, whether he'll be successful, he would be successful if there were a trial. It's unclear, right? Unclear whether those charges would survive, but at least the special counsel believes he's got the ability to bring the charges. The grand jury has bought it, and that's enough. And that's mm-hmm. enough to put pressure on defendants, uh, potential defendants, um, and to say to them, look, maybe you ought to cooperate. And that really is part of what the Mueller investigation is about right now. It's about building up that, that sort of uh, cooperation uh, group uh, to see how far he can get, to find out what more information he can get about what happened and what didn't happen during the election and in the aftermath.
0: Yeah, along those lines, uh, the indictment also talks about the foreign agent registration act, the FARA, which is one of the least used criminal laws in the books. Uh, Again, probably giving people pause, not only in this context, but others to think about what the heck is this law? What does it mean? What do I need to do? Um, Also, uh, released earlier today uh, in terms of expanding the scope, making people cooperate, Uh, and something that uh, is more near and dear to law firms around town was an, uh, an indictment against a former hapless Skadden associate yeah. uh, who was accused of making false statements yeah. in connection with his representation of a Ukrainian government entity. Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm
1: not sure we can read
0: anything into that other than. Poor former Skadden associate who find himself in the bad side of these charges. But it, it, anything well, to make of that, Jamil?
1: you know, poor him. I mean, you know, lying to the federal officials is something you probably ought, ought not do um, if, in fact, he did that. Uh, that's what he's accused of. He's also accused of uh, of destroying evidence. Uh, probably not a great play once you're – if you're a lawyer, you should probably know better. Um, so all of these things concerning, uh, both for him and for the law firm, which apparently is cooperating and says they terminated him last year. Um, interestingly, um, you know, Mr. Uh, – uh, this, this – uh, uh, Van Wazer, Van Der Zwan, Van Der Zwan, Van Der Zwan um, you know, is uh, the son-in-law of a Russian billionaire. Um, yeah. Now, you know, who knows there's any connection there or whatever, but it's an interesting fact um, and uh, and concerning. Obviously, the Russians are very involved, interested in what's happening in Ukraine, Um you know, supportive of the efforts of, um, well, there was there's a debate about what, what side Russia supported here right. with Yanukovych <laughs> and Timochenko, you know, and, uh, you know, the effort to, uh, to go after sounds. her. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, this is a Russian play, by the way. You'll notice that the trolls, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the complaint, filed by Special Counsel played both sides of the game, right? And so, you know, there's been a lot of debate about who are they trying to elect and what are they trying to do. And there's been quite a bit of debate about that. One thing I think is interesting about it is, What's clear is they were trying to monkey with the system and mm-hmm. to put us at one another's throats. And, you know, to that end, you know, I think the president and the foreign president are right. They've succeeded phenomenally well <laughs> in doing just that thing and, and make it harder for this president to do his, his job. But also it would be very hard for Hillary Clinton to do her job had she been elected. And so a very interesting and, and, you know, smart, quote unquote smart play by the Russians, uh, very effective at least, uh, much more effective than I think that we've historically been in covert influence operations.
0: Yeah. And as, speaking of elections, and this is a much less newsy topic, yeah. we had the uh, august body the National Association of Secretaries of State gather in Washington this weekend yeah. uh, where there were multiple panels on election cybersecurity. This comes the same week that the Center for American Progress released a report grading the election systems yeah. from a cybersecurity perspective from all 50 states. Now, uh, Jamil, the center. Uh, gave out uh, A's, B's, C's, D's, and F's. Actually, didn't get any A's. No A's. A few
1: B's, yeah. mostly C's, C's, D's, and F's. Yeah.
0: You know, from your academic perspective, I imagine I can only imagine the concern that your students might uh, yeah. express faced with those grades. But what are the problems <laughs> here? Fair. Uh, and what do, what do you see? Are these are these state and local problems, Are these federal government problems? Are they m- m- both?
1: Well, so they're primarily state and local problems in the sense that states and localities run these elections day to day, and they're the ones who buy the voting machines, they're the ones who certify the results and the like, Uh, but they have an impact on federal elections because federal elections are run locally, right? So whether it's elections to Congress or the presidential elections, they're run by localities and by states, and so um, they can cause federal concern. Um, and I think what what Cap has highlighted, uh, you know, I was it was it was I was invited to uh, to speak at a panel when they released the report. And I was and I think in a lot of ways, um, I am just as concerned as Cap is. And, you know, people on both sides of the aisle are concerned about the election security issues because we are legitimately under attack by a foreign nation state, Russia, that is looking to undermine our confidence in our electoral system. Now, uh, nobody's suggesting they've gotten into ballots and changed ballots. Uh, nobody's been suggesting really that they've gotten into electoral systems and change registrations, although there have been uh, apparently probing attempts. Um, and so, but what that does raise a concern about is, uh, that our election system is not resilient to these type of attacks and these these kind of grades. And, and there are a lot of debates about the methodology used by CAP and was the right methodology or the like, and did they score things the right way? But at the end of the day, what it reveals is there are serious challenges in our state and local elect- electoral system. And the federal government has a role to play here, too. They have a role to play in terms of giving guidance, in terms of providing some resources that can be leveraged by the states, um, and really uh, providing information about the threat. Now, they've done a good job. Deitchis has done a lot talking with the states and working with them, but more needs to be done. The 2018 elections are coming up, I'm very worried that we are not prepared uh for the onslaught of activity by foreign nation states, uh, particularly Russia, against the twenty eighteen and twenty twenty presidential elections. Uh, and more needs to be done now. And that takes real leadership here in Washington. And unfortunately, that is a thing that we have been lacking um, on both sides of the aisle uh, in recent in recent months and years, unfortunately.
0: So in, in the face of these concerns, which I think it, it is a bipartisan issue, I think we have people on both sides at least acknowledging the problem, uh, yeah. although we haven't found a solution yet. Yeah. But we have a number of states that have stuck proudly to some sort of a paper-based approach. Yeah. Uh, so we have apparently two states, including Oregon, yeah. require their residents to vote by mail. Uh, and Oregon's Secretary of State has touted that, quote, we're using paper and we're never involved with the Internet. Now, is that the right way to go here?
1: Yes, I'm not sure. You know, there's been a lot made in the CAP report. It says a lot about voting by mail, and it's interesting because I'm not sure voting by mail is more secure than voting in person, potentially with, you know, with showing an ID, right? Most states now require voter, uh, uh, voter ID. Um, and so I'm not sure which is safer. I do understand the concerns about electronic balloting, um, and I do think it's important to have a paper trail for your uh, for your electronic ballots. And I think it's important that we audit those paper trails. Um, and so among the various recommendations in the CAP report, those are ones that I think are, are sort of obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, it will cost some amount of money to retrofit some systems, um, potentially buy new systems. But it also takes effort and it takes uh, people coming together and saying, OK, we're going to do this, right? Mm-hmm. And Virginia, you know, successfully uh, pivoted in the last election to uh, a form of paper ballots. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying you have to go to old school paper or you have to go to buy mail. I'm not sure, even sure Sure, that's, like I said, I'm not sure if it's sure more secure, but I do think that there's real value in having a paper trail and having audits
0: done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so moving from Russian interference in elections to uh, another Russian topic, this is uh, a Russian cybersecurity company trying to hang on. Yeah. Uh, we've got the much maligned Kaspersky Labs, and they're continuing their legal fight. Earlier last week, uh, they filed another lawsuit, uh, this one against the United States, uh, for a, an NDAA clause that no. would have banned Kaspersky products from any US government contracting or use. So, Jamil, just hearkening back to your days as a, a clerk for some pretty fancy judges, um, I'm wondering if you have a soft spot in your heart for the bill of attainder clause in the Constitution, and any thoughts on how a bill of attainder argument might play out in a case like this?
1: Well, you know, when I saw it, I sort of, I sort of chuckled and said, I mean, a you know, bill of attainder. I mean, who, I mean, who uses that, right? I mean, is that a real thing anymore? In the sense of, does it really happen, and is it really an effectual claim? Um, and then I looked at who signed the pleadings, and you know, this, these are serious lawyers, Ryan Fahey from. From uh, from Baker McKenzie, he's a serious lawyer. Um, he was the national security division for a long time. Right. Did export control stuff. So he is, he you know, he's not making it up. Um, now that being said, so then I went back and I looked at the NDA clause, and um, I mean, it is very specific to Kaspersky. Uh, what, by the way, rightfully so. Um, but it does raise some questions about, you know, uh, if you get that specific about an individual company. Now, there's a clause as, as the complaint points out, mm-hmm. a third clause that talks about general reviews and things that the government might mm-hmm. do to uh, look at threats from foreign countries mm-hmm. and foreign, foreign owned companies and potentially foreign influenced companies. Um, and actually suggests that look, the fact that they have this clause C in the NDAA proves that A and B are actually bills of attainder. I'm not sure that that's the right way of reading the interaction, um, and we'll see how this plays out going forward. Um, but, uh, but what I thought was a frivolous claim may not be so frivolous. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, um, how we deal with those companies in a globalizing world, I think is a hard question. Mm -hmm. I think for these companies, if they want to get smart, what they would do is they would be much more transparent about their operations, much more transparent about their ownership structures, much more Mm -hmm. transparent about what they do and don't do with respect to their devices and Mm -hmm. open them up to, uh, you know, outside auditing. We've got a huge community of researchers who could, who could, who could go at them. Um, and, uh, you know. We're not seeing that yet from any of those three companies, and I think that's part of the concern. And, of course, with the Kaspersky, we all have heard about the, uh, allegation that some of the ways that, uh, some of the documents were taken off of, uh, the hard drives of, of former NSAers right. or NSAers right. who had stuff t- taken home with them. Again, its own separate problem, uh, but apparently through exploits in Kaspersky, so. Right. Concerning.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's and it's an interesting way to attack this this issue if you're Kaspersky. I you know, not having the legal pedigree that you do. I I went to my favorite legal, legal research Wikipedia to find out a little bit more about the Bill of Attainder clause. Uh the US Supreme Court has apparently only invalidated 5 laws in the history of our republic under the Bill of Attainder. The first was a law in the case called Ex parte Garland the court struck down a federal law requiring attorneys practicing in federal court to swear that they had not supported the rebellion. Uh, so uh, not not all that specific, I would Interesting. say yeah. uh, it is uh, evolved but a small category. <laughs> yes, a very small. Yeah. Ca- exactly. And the category yeah. is what the courts yeah. focused on. There's another case involving Nixon uh, where there was a law requiring Nixon to turn over certain records to the National Archives. In that case, the court, as you just suggested, yeah. Jamil said it's not so much the size of the category, but there's a reason that we're focusing on Nixon. In this case, he's a category of one. He's the mm-hmm. president. Um, so. Fascinating from kind of a legal perspective. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure whether that means the case will actually have legs when the dust
1: settles. I think that's but, right. I think that's right. Uh,
0: so then finishing our, uh, our Russia play for the day. Uh, mm-hmm. So we, er, of course, earlier this last week, the U.S. joined the U.K. government in officially and very unsurprisingly, I would say, acknowledging that uh, attributing the not Petya attack to the Russian government. Yeah. Uh, this was the attack, uh, originally in Ukraine last year, uh, spread to Russia and then around the world, yeah. uh, pretty quickly. Um, this struck me as noteworthy only because it was so public in uh, mm. attribution. What, what's your take on this, Jamil?
1: I think it's interesting about this is it shows a continuing sort of march uh, that began the Obama administration um, and has continued the Trump administration of sort of naming and shaming uh, nation states who are involved in cyber attacks. So, uh, you know, we just uh, we we heard about not last week. Uh, we heard about WannaCry in North Korea a few months earlier with Tom Bossert uh, doing an op ed in The Wall Street Journal. Um, and so I think what you see here is an attempt by the U.S. government to say we're going to call you out. Now, that's important, uh, but calling co- countries out is not simply enough. As you know, I have been at the State Department uh, for deterrence to work. Uh, there's a number of things you have to do. There have to be consequences, and those consequences have to be serious, they have to be consistent. Uh, we have not been uh, consistent in our consequences for cyber attacks, even by nation states, even where we've attributed them, um, and even where they've caused uh, significant problems. Uh, we've now called out Iran um, for the attacks on um, on the on on the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, we've now called out North Korea for WannaCry and for Sony Corporation. We've now called out Russia on NotPetya. Yet, we really haven't seen an effective use of the sanctions order that you all worked through in the Obama administration, uh, nor an effective use of any other tool of American uh, strong, soft or hard power uh, to address these threats. And it may be that we believe that it hasn't reached the point where, where those where those tools are necessary. But then you can't be surprised if nation states continue to charge forward um, and conduct these attacks and, and increase them until you get to the point of pain where we're going to exact consequences. And so, um, again, deterrence – people pen, tend to think deterrence has failed in cyberspace. I don't think so. The problem is we've never really tried to deter, deter folks and use a traditional approach to deterrence. Um, a lot of that also, by the way, involves talking about our capabilities, which we don't do very much, um, at least not publicly. Uh, we let it leak out and then maybe sort of you know, tacitly we cannot acknowledge it. Um, but it's important, you know. Pr- people sort of mock President Trump for having this uh, this parade of arms that he's thinking about having this military parade. But if you remember back in the Cold War, that parade of arms concept was a very was very much one way in which nation states sort of effectuated deterrence. He said, "Look, we've got these weapons. We're not going to show you all of them, but we'll show you some of them." And uh, I do think, in some ways, sort of parading our cyber capabilities a little more publicly. Um, again, consistent with sources of methods, protection sources of methods, is an important part if we're going to ever achieve successful cyber mm-hmm. deterrence. I
0: mean, it does seem like, though, that, that you hit on a point that's uh, tricky in this area, which yeah. is – um, if you're talking about deterrence through cyber means, then yep. you've got pretty significant concerns with sources and methods, with capabilities, yeah. um, which with some of the things that some have criticized the Mueller indictment for, which is, oh, now we've revealed how we investigate uh, these cyber attacks, for, for example. Uh, I also wonder for think about the, the cases you just mentioned, Iran, North Korea, Russia. Three of the most heavily sanctioned countries in the world in other respects, I'm not sure if they would say oh we've been we haven't been touched by the u s right. machine even if the the sanctions aren't cyber specific Fair. Uh, i I do think that our going out there uh, as a government and attributing things uh, as we did uh, this past week helps build I agree. H- uh consensus I agree with that uh, on on those other measures absolutely um so but uh, we, we also have the continuing debate here in the United States. We had hearings again last week on uh, what we need to do more to increase our own defenses. We had the White House yeah. uh, Council of Economic Advisors come out with a report saying last year cyber attacks cost the U.S. economy somewhere between 60 and $120 billion, uh, 2016, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, are we finally at a stage where we are going to pass some law uh, addressing cyber security, data breach notification? And do we need such a law, in your view?
1: Well, it's a great question. I mean, there's a lot of laws being considered. As you know, um, uh, the Obama administration worked with Republicans in Congress to pass an information-sharing law back in 2015, a uh, law that I had worked on when I was on the Hill um, and eventually got passed in 2015. Uh, that, I think, has been a positive step in the right direction. There's more to be done there. I think there are uh, things that you could do to strengthen that law and make it more likely that companies take up that effort to share information um, and really create a collective defense system where – companies work together with one another to defend each other and to protect one another um, and then work with the government to share information about the threats they're seeing so the government can then use its capabilities both classified and unclassified to collect information about the threat they're seeing out in in the SIGINT space and the like and then pass that information back in usable foreign American companies so that we're not talking about having NSA or DOD out there defending the American internet but instead you have American private companies defending themselves but empowered by government information Right? the idea today that one company can defend itself against an entire foreign nation-state is laughable. It's not real, and yet today it is what we expect of companies, and it's not realistic. Um, And so I think there's work to be done on information sharing. But beyond that, I think there's a lot of work to be done um, uh, with the government and and industry, really just collaborating, right, creating uh, interoperable systems and capabilities so that if and when the balloon does go up and we are in a very real sort of, quote-unquote, shooting cyber war, bits down range, as it were – that we're prepared to deal with that. We are not prepared as a nation to deal with that today. If we got into a situation like Ukraine or like Georgia or like Estonia, we would be just as flat footed as they were and it's been almost a decade since Estonia was attacked, you know, and so the idea somehow that we're not prepared for that or, and are not Putting in place the capabilities and measures to do that concerns me more than any breach notification laws or the like. Now, to be sure, um, breach notification is a hotly debated topic. The SEC has rules on that now for publicly traded companies. Um, where I think that gets challenging is companies are caught, right, in between a rock and a hard place. Um, they want to be able to disclose on their own time frame and be able to be able to say to the investors, we've done the right thing and we've protected you. At the same time, they don't want to be under 50 different states' regulations, so they want to look for a federal standard, but it needs to be a federal standard that's, that's 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 effective. And so I think there's a real challenge here between getting the right breach notification law. I tend to think, at the end of the day, cooperation between the government and industry is is more effective than laws and regulations in this space, in part because we've seen the success of the NIST framework. We've seen failures and attempts to regulate, and partly because, the tr- truth be told, the government is not very good at its own cybersecurity, and the idea is somehow they might regulate cybersecurity of in private industry uh, effectively uh, seems almost, almost, you know, laughable. And so, uh, so I think in a lot of ways, really, it's, it's, it's more cooperation on all these fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, laws and frameworks, uh, and regulations can help in a framework-setting sense, but if they get if they get actually to the point of of imposing costs and imposing requirements, you create a situation where you might actually throw the baby out with the bathwater and make what looks like something more safer, but actually make us less safe. And that's what I really am worried about mm-hmm. in this space.
0: Mm-hmm. So one of the things that came up um, in a hearing that w- took place last week was there's a lot of talk about the GDPR. Yeah. You know, people, our listeners are very familiar with the GDPR. Are there aspects of that law? That you think U.S. lawmakers should be thinking about incorporating into the next the next step in uh, building on the legislation that you helped with, a few
1: man, years back. that is a layup. <laughs> no, GDPR <laughs> is is in all in honesty one of the most ridiculous uh, regulations. It's sort, it is is sort of a, a the classic European Union response to problems, classic regulatory response to problems. Um, it is uh, it is almost impossible for anybody to actually comply with effectively. Um it is uh it is in a lot of ways really a protectionist measure because it's only being really enforced effectively against American companies in Europe. Uh I believe one European company today has been targeted under GPR and its predecessor regulations. GPR of course not in effect yeah. yet until May. Um but it is costing hundreds of millions of dollars U.S. companies. I mean, law firms are doing very well here in this <laughs> space, uh, advising companies on how to deal with them, including yes. including uh, companies like ours. Um, but it is it is uh, hugely problematic. Um, and uh, and 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 then on to- later on, on top of GDPR are the ECJ's rulings about what GDPR means course, uh, to yeah. include potentially IP addresses in certain circumstances being right. per, you know protected information, which is just I mean I, I don't know how you effectively conduct business without collecting some measure of IP addresses. Um, so it's very problematic. Um, and I do worry a lot about it. And it's sort of as an example of why regulation in this space is not that smart. And ostensibly good sounding privacy supportive regulation, which by the way, we should all be supportive of privacy, right? Our our forefathers came from uh, a perspective of being very concerned about overweening government influence um, and wanting our privacy and our and our and our civil liberties. Um, but but the uh, European methodology and GDPR probably ain't it. Uh, one last thing I would mention is you know we've got a I'm working with the Federal Society on a very interesting mm-hmm. uh, regulatory transparency project where we're working to look at uh, regulations, particularly in the cyber and privacy space, um, and addressing some of these things like GDPR, which are concerning. Um, and I do worry that uh, that you know our reaction to a lot of these things is well let's regulate the solution in mm-hmm. you know, instead of figuring out how to cooperate and work together, industry and government together. Uh, to find a better outcome, and a lot of ways in, in this highly uh, evolving, rapidly moving space, that might be the better play. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, well, let's leave it there for today. Uh, that v- very helpful, and uh, you- you're right. Law firms get a lot of questions about GDPR. I can only imagine what a U.S. law that had a cause of action like the one in the GDPR might create here in the United States. Or the
1: penalties—four percent of global turnover. I mean, I, that is astounding—an astounding amount of money. <laughs>
0: Uh, Fair enough. So thanks to Jamil for joining us today. This has been Episode 204 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget that if you suggest a guest interviewee and they join us on the show, we will send you one of our highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mugs. So please do send your suggestions into Cyberlaw Podcast at Steptoe.com. Coming up, we will be joined by Nathan Sales, who is the Ambassador-at-Large and Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the State Department, among many other guests. And we hope that you will join us uh, in those episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.